0: Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And each Monday morning, we join the Liquid Markets Group Market Meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. Good morning. It is Monday, the 17th of August, and we start the week with an almost 50% recovery in global equities since the March lows have left the MSCI Global Proxy close to its all-time high, as investors bet central banks and governments will maintain support for ailing economies trying to rebound from the virus shutdowns. This follows news out of the UK that they are now officially in a recession, with the nation's economy shrinking more than 20% during the COVID period. And locally, we continue to be led by Victoria as it continues to battle COVID with those strict and economically impacting phase four lockdowns. However, the debate is very much a federal one with the government's response dominating our political headlines. And more recently, coronavirus has had its first election impact, with the New Zealand election being delayed. Could Trump take a leaf out of our book? Stu, we start this week with 23,000 confirmed corona cases in Australia, whilst globally, there have been 21 and a half million cases globally, and three quarters of a million deaths caused by this historic virus. However, we are going to start with those historically high equity markets. Has it been green across the board? And are they right to be ignoring the pandemic realities? How are global currencies faring? And is a currency war between nations to simulate trade on the table? Thanks, Craig. Yeah, it has been another positive week for risk
1: assets, but we've seen a decoupling from the cove movement across asset classes that we discussed last week with the jump in government bond yields, probably the most conspicuous example of this. And that's something Beverly is going to discuss shortly. But as the S&P 500 flirts with all-time highs, it's a good time to look back and see how we got here and also assess whether the conditions remain in place to move forward through the second half of the year. And the pillars which have defined asset price movement since the COVID crisis in March have been the immense fiscal and monetary stimulus delivering record peacetime fiscal deficits alongside unprecedented central bank actions. And this has occurred alongside other tailwinds, uh, notably the swift economic rebound, particularly in the US, which has been more powerful than expected, Uh, better than expected corporate earnings, uh, positive developments on the vaccine front and quite a bit of hope there, and increasingly lower real yields. But it's also instructive that asset price gains haven't been derailed by setbacks that have occurred along the way including that second wave pandemic across the US and increasingly across other countries and regions, including Europe, Japan, and Australia, and now New Zealand. Deteriorating relations between the US and China uh, has been another setback, but hasn't really affected asset prices at this point. Uh, And tensions there are across a number of issues. And we've also got that increasingly rancorous political environment in the US as we approach November's election, interfering with the delivery of another round of stimulus. And other features of asset moves in this post-crisis environment include an unusually narrow subset of stock market leadership concentrated in those mega cap growth stocks uh, and in retail investor participation, which is surged and fueled by free brokerage. And we've also seen investor demand for inflation protection which is manifesting itself in a bull market for precious metals and non-dollar currencies. Uh, And this demand for non-dollar currencies has seen non-commercial long positioning the euro reach record levels in recent weeks. Uh, Looking forward, investors do remain confident that those pillars of support from governments and the central banking community remain absolutely committed to underwriting the economic rebound with a particular focus on restoring full employment and less sensitivity to where asset prices are. And this allows investors to brush off those setbacks in the macro environment and continue to be even more forward looking, allowing asset prices and the economic performance to decouple.
0: Thanks, Stu. Uh, Anthony, we might turn to you, please. So Stu just talked to us through there around this uh, ability to brush off the setbacks and also highlighted the support for precious metals. The s and P's at all-time highs at the moment. Can you take us through what's driving this? And also, can we please get an update on those gold and silver prices as
2: well? Thanks, Craig. Um, we did see some profit-taking uh, in gold, which was uh, down 4% over the week. Uh, silver was also off around 6.5% for the week. Um, nonetheless, gold is still up around 28% calendar year to date, uh, while silver is up 48% over the same period. Uh, Energy also had a positive week. WTI was up around 2%, though the price action had a less uh, bullish tone at the back end of last week uh, as investors look ahead uh, to the OPEC Plus meeting taking place over the next few days. Turning to uh, equities, as Stu mentioned, we saw another positive week with the S&P 500 testing its all-time highs to finish the week up 64 basis points. Uh, The Nasdaq was basically flat for the week following a a relatively uh, uneventful session on Friday. Uh, The Eurostox managed to hold on to its weekly gain despite giving up over 1% on Friday, as the UK adds more uh, European countries to its quarantine list. Um, Equity markets in the Asia-Pacific region were the standout, however, uh, with the Nikkei finishing up uh, around 4% for the week, and the ASX 200 was was up 2%. Now, despite the ongoing low realised volatility in the US, uh, the VIX barely moved over the week, having seemingly found support at its current level of 22 vol. Um, The last time the S&P was at all-time highs uh, back in February, the VIX was around uh, 14 vol. So relative to the environment at the start of the year, uh, the the cost of buying outright protection in the S&P 500 today seems almost unpalatable uh, in comparison.
0: Bev, we might switch to you, please. Um, There's been a steepening in the curve and a rise in yields. Can you talk us through what's driving this and can it continue?
3: Yeah, hi Craig. Look, it was a very interesting uh, week last week. We've been talking for, you know, a few months now about the fact that we've had very small daily moves in bond yields and, um, you know, pretty much range bound for for quite a while. But last week. Um, That you know, that did change quite a bit. We saw quite a decent sell-off in rates and US really leading that move. Um, It was the largest sell-off, actually, since the first week of June. So um, quite a notable week in that regard. Um, So US 10s were up 15 basis points, um, but it was really... Um, led, as you sort of indicated there, by the long end. So 30-year yields were actually up over 20 basis points um, just in the last week. So the curves have, have really re-steepened quite sharply uh, last week. So the 5.30s curve is up 15 basis points just in the last week and, and starting to approach those those highs that they hit in early June again. Um, breakevens inflation markets still um, had another positive week. Um, so we're continuing to make new highs there as well. Um, but last week was a bit of a change um, and, and, and a reversal from, you know, really the last few months of declining real yields, and that changed last week. So quite a, a, a fair bit of that long end move was actually driven by tightening in real yields. So, so that's definitely an interesting development. I, I think, you know, the fact that, that equities have managed to, to you know, withstand that move in real yields and take it in its stride is, is definitely a positive. What? Caused um, these moves. Look, it's it's not obvious that there was one single catalyst. Um, but as you mentioned, we are getting you know some better COVID developments in the U.S. in the last few weeks. We're also continuing to get you know quite decent data coming out of the U.S. On Friday, we had you know quite strong industrial production, retail sales numbers. So they're all looking very solid. Um, but over the week, the one that really caught my eye was the CPI data. Um, we had a core CPI print um, that was the Strongest monthly increase since 1991. So that was quite, um, you know, a, 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 an exciting number for that market, and definitely gave that inflation market an extra little boost. Um, but it's the supply story. It's still ongoing. And um, we've been talking about this for months. There's no um, lead up to the supply coming on stream there. And last week, the 30 year auction in the US was very sloppy indeed. So that's definitely one to watch. Um, and we've got more supply this week. It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, at slightly higher levels of yield now, whether that supply this week starts getting taken down a little bit better. Um, But I guess, you know, stepping back and coming back to Stu's comments here that, you know, what the market has been able to shrug off. Um, it's still very interesting to me that the markets are still able to shrug off the fact that we don't have a fiscal deal. Um, and so um, the US Senate has now gone into recess without any resolution on this deal. Um, so it won't meet again until after Labor Day, which is, you know, around three three weeks away. So the fact that the markets are, are taking this in its stride is positive. And I guess coming back um, and reiterating Stu's points there that the markets are still, you know, very much, of the view that the fiscal and monetary response is going to be there. Um, and you know, so far, that, that, that's definitely the way markets are trading.
0: And, Bev, just a very quick one. We've been following inflation for quite a while now. And given that latest print you just referred to, re- recently we were talking about the great buying opportunity. Is there still a great opportunity for inflation going forward?
3: Look, we we still think there is. I mean, they've had a, a fantastic run um, in the last few weeks. And, and you know, it, it's, you know, the, the magnitudes of the moves that we've seen are, are not normal. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to underestimate how much they've moved already um, from their lows. Um, but there's still, if you look at history um, and historical trading ranges for inflation markets, we're still well below those normal trading ranges. So from our point of view, um, you know, we, we would still say that there's still good value here um, and, and certainly think they can keep going.
0: Thanks, Bev. Paul, we might switch cr- across to Europe, please. Uh, I mentioned at the start the UK is, you know, qu- quite terrible news, but of course, Stu also referred to the the euro and the power there. Can we get a European and emerging market update from you, please?
4: Yes, yeah, similar to um, to the US, uh, things uh, we saw quite a heavy. Uh, Uh, steepening um, across the curve. Um, Probably the worst, uh, biggest move we've seen in almost two months. Um, Interestingly though, as that curve steepened, we actually had um, the periphery starting to outperform again. Um, Italy, uh, for example, is in at 140. Those are the um, post-COVID tights, um, and what what we've seen. Uh, Ireland also got affirmed on Friday night by Moody's in terms of its rating agency. And um, we also saw saw, saw some steepening in the UK curve, 5.30s again, uh, got a bit of supply this week, Uh, got a little bit of supply out of France this week as well, um, somewhere between six and seven billion, mainly across the belly of the curve. So that's a little smaller than we would expect, but largely Europe's still on holiday. So this is going to be the last week where Europe's going to be on holiday. And of course, as it's maybe being curtailed a little bit as a lot of the British are now uh, evacuating France and uh, and coming back across the border a little bit earlier than expected. But uh, generally, Europe is relatively quiet, and that's what we would expect in the middle of August. Whereas with emerging markets, uh, we never really get a let up, of course. That's when uh, most of the crises happen in emerging markets, if you know your history. Um, yeah, so we had we had a deal in Argentina. Argentina came to a deal with uh, the, the main creditors there, so that was very good. Um, most of that came in the week before last. Um, we also had Ecuador coming with a deal with its three largest creditors. They also hoped on the back of this to be able to come off with an IMF loan and a bilateral loan out of China. So those are two very positive stories. Sri Lanka got a credit swap line. Uh, With India, and of course, last week we saw more stability in 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 Turkey. You know, whereas the last few weeks have been quite um, have been quite volatile in that space with with. Particularly uh, runs on the currency, so essentially, um, emerging markets were very stable. Now, if you looked at the emerging market bond performance, it was pretty flat. Whereas, if you looked at um, you know U.S. rates, they were actually down quite a lot. Uh, you know, global rates were down quite a lot. So, emerging markets outperformed quite significantly last week, and. Um, you know, that's really been backed by that issuance levels been quite strong. We saw a little bit out of Ukraine and Korea, but quite last week, whereas the previous week we saw a bit more uplift with uh, Panama getting away. And I've talked to before, Craig, about the flows. Um, flows are still positive. You know, they've turned positive in EM debt, but they're not aggressively so. You know, we're still negative year to date. Um, Just last week, we had about a billion inflow. Most of that is in hard currency, not local currency, as you would expect. But we're still a good 33 billion down year on year or sorry, year to date. So we expect that to come back at some point. And those valuation aspects that we talked about still make it an attractive asset class for us.
0: Thanks, Paul. Sounds like those emerging market yields remain and a good opportunity to take a look at that. Richard, we might switch now to global credit, please. And uh, Paul mentioned before the issuance levels in the emerging markets, but of course, in the global macro space, we've also hit some all-time highs with regards to debt tenders in the US. Can we get your insights, please, on what's occurring here with that global record and also the large amount of tenders we're seeing in the IG credit market?
5: Yeah, sure, Craig. So we're seeing a bit of a pivot in corporate behaviour here. So, you know, we talked a lot earlier in the year about the well-documented corporate issuance flood in response to the liquidity risk posed by COVID. And we know that shoring up liquidity by issuing debt is the first step taken by companies in a crisis. But, you know, right here and now, corporates have changed tack a little and are now very focused on right-sizing their balance sheet. And they're doing it, which is pleasing from a credit investor standpoint, in a credit-friendly way. So as a result, we're seeing companies tender debt, that is, buy their debt back from investors. So far in August, we've seen 31 bill of USIG debt tendered, and this is an all-time monthly record, and we're still only halfway through the month. When tendering debt, companies are either paying down debt outright, or um, they're looking to do something leverage neutral, tender and extend trade. And so that's essentially um, buying back short-dated debt and, um, and issuing longer dated debt and so this lengthens the maturity profile, brings down the total amount of interest they pay on their debt stack, given the lower rates and spreads in the market currently. Um, and so for investors, um, you know, this is obviously positive behaviour as um, it, it further helps the supply demand technical with less bonds out there for investors to buy. But on the fundamental side, it also increases the creditworthiness of corporates by lowering overall interest burdens and lengthening maturity profiles.
0: Thanks, Richard, for the update on the global macro space. Mareka. we might now switch to the earnings wrap-up from the micro level. And we're just coming off to the close of those U.S. US earnings seasons, rather, where tech has been the MVP. Can I please get your update on where we're sitting with regards to the earnings seasons in Australia as well?
6: Absolutely, Craig, thanks. So as you said, we're close to the end of Q2 reporting in the US and in Europe, and the theme of the season's really been earnings much stronger than consensus expectations. We've had 84% of US companies beat earnings and 63% beat on sales. Craig, those numbers are about 15 to 20% higher than normal. We've also had 40% of companies guiding higher for next quarter and that's really quite different to what we saw in Q1 where we had 75% of companies either lowering their guidance or withdrawing it altogether. That's sort of where the good news stopped though because as you'd expect, earnings per share and sales actually dropped year on year. But as you pointed out, technology companies really were the sort of the the leader there. And we also saw some good results out of healthcare companies. Energy companies sort of bought up the rear, they fared the worst, their earnings were actually lower than consensus. And I think Anthony touched on it earlier, but oil prices were really the sort of driver there for, for energy company earnings. If we look at what share price reactions did though, the companies that missed estimates were punished in the next 24 hours by about 2.6%. But those um, that beat, weren't really rewarded either this time round. They sort of, their one day performance was up 30 basis points. Normally you'd expect to see that sort of a a rally of at least a percent we've been saying this all reporting season craig you know company actions richard's just touched on it company actions were great for credit investors dividends were restricted there was really high focus on preserving balance sheets if we look at australia we're we're looking at full year earnings for the asx 200 here we're only about a third of the way through though and while we're seeing some companies be debt friendly with dividend cuts we wouldn't really say that's as common or as large here so far as it's been offshore the beat miss ratio is about average companies have been guiding down really if they've been even guiding at all and if we look at sort of which industries are doing what you know industrials and energy have been weaker so far resources and financials are beating so Craig while we're still pretty early in the Aussie reporting season we'd say it's sort of too early to make any sort of strong calls here you know even though results in the us were lower the market was really relieved that reporting still beat their expectations and i think so far you know the aussie reporting season's just not really having the same impact thanks marika and thanks
0: everyone for today's market update and again we find ourselves in the tail of two themes dominating our global economy and markets with the here and now of that economic data against the largely positive forward-looking financial markets, driven by that sheer levels of stimulus we talked about earlier. And it was really interesting to hear the latest Precious Metals news with the rally stalling for a little bit. For how long with the news the market's guru, Warren Buffett, is now buying in? Will we see pricing take off again with that retail support? And what does it mean for our markets? Thank you for listening to our Market Moments podcast this morning. We hope you can listen into Friday's Take 10 Economic Update and have a super week ahead.